Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And we have got Ashley Ford on the episode today. We're really excited about this. We were so excited to have her come on for our first book club episode. Um, and she was fantastic. Jen, what did you think? Oh, she was amazing. I mean, I, I always take notes with the guests as they're talking so I can track the conversation. But with Ashley, I was actually taking notes for myself. She's just such an amazing, dynamic smart, wise person. I'm thrilled that we were able to have her as a guest. And the book is excellent. So if you haven't read the book yet, and thank you to all listeners who gave us questions because that was that was really helpful in the interview. But if you haven't read the book, Somebody's Daughter yet, it's really worth your time. It's a really beautiful exploration. It's a memoir about Ashley's family, which you'll hear about later. Um, Kim, how are you doing this week? Let's have a little check-in. I'm doing all right, Jen. I mean, the weather is just slowly, slowly at night. It starts feeling ever so autumnal, which is nice. You know, I'm usually pretty sad when summer's over. I hate it when it gets dark early. I hate it when the leaves fall off the trees. But I'm kind of psyched for fall this year. What about you? I'm doing well. I was thinking about um, careers and jobs. I saw something on Twitter, I think, this week about how... Reality Bites, the end of Reality Bites. Do you remember Reality Bites? I do. Okay. Winona Ryder, Ben Stiller, Ethan Hawke. They're in Houston. I believe that that movie was filmed, at least in part, in Houston, Texas, my hometown. Yes. I think you might be right about that. Well, I've been thinking about, there was a thing on Twitter this week about how um, Gen X Reality Bites is, obviously, but how specifically the decision she makes at the end um, to not do anything with her film because you remember Ben Stiller like ruined it, whatever, like a fake MTV he's working at and he like turns it into like this schmaltzy thing with like, you know, cartoons floating around and like tur- like basically turns all of them into caricatures and she's so principled that she's like, no, I'm not going to do anything with it. And 
that I feel like this is such a distinction between our generation and the generations after us um, that nobody could would consider a decision like that. Like this was a very principled decision. And I think that we are also, our generation Gen X is very reluctant to self-promote, to compromise. And I've been thinking about this a lot because you and I have been talking about self-promotion a lot and not being comfortable with it. Yep. And just feeling like kind of gross about any contrivance around our work, but that it's a necessary part of doing creative work now. It's like you, you really can't do creative work without really kind of being nimble and good at self-promotion. Or you can't do it to any success, you know? No, it's really true. You can do it and show it to your tiny little sphere of friends. Yeah. Or, or you can decide to take it to another realm. Um, and I have no problem with that. I have no problem with self-promotion. What I, what I get annoyed by is sort of disingenuous self-promotion or somebody who we both know who's having a lot of success right now who is just the master of the humble brag self-promotion. You know, had to wake up so early to be interviewed by Terry Gross. Right, 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 right. No, there is a, there is a, well, I don't even know if that's a humble brag. That's like a, I don't, that's like a, that's like a complainy brag. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what it is. I just, as we started to commodify authenticity, it's kind of like, well, where the fuck do we even go? As particularly if you see a lot of people being successful who you know, and you, you're like, wait, that's not true. But you're trying to do something that's, you know, quote unquote, real here. But that's not true. And the whole thing just makes me feel so icky and gross. And I do think it's a generational thing. I do think it's a generational thing that we don't like having our work attached to this kind of self-promotion and it, maybe it just comes naturally to people younger than us. I think it comes much more naturally for people who are younger than us. I do know people my own age who are very comfortable with self-promotion um, of the sort that you have to do in the digital era. I, I, I know people who are able to do it, but I know a lot more who, you know, have that Gen X like, oh, nobody's going to care. This sucks. When in fact, they've just created like the best album of the decade or the best novel of the year. Right. Nobody wants, is going to care. This sucks. Or, oh, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. <laughs> like, right. Like, I mean, I remember when I was at Lucky, another editor-in-chief, um, in an uncharacteristically helpful moment, because editors-in-chief were also horrible to each other at Condé Nast, but in a helpful moment, she said, you know, you really have to completely embody everything about your brand all the time. Ugh. And I was just like, oh, man. Like, that just sounds totally unappealing but there are ways in which I was you know obviously ways in which I was not totally successful as an editor-in-chief and one of them was that I just couldn't I couldn't do that I couldn't turn I didn't want to create a cult of personality I didn't want to turn myself into a brand it, all those things yeah I mean I can relate entirely to what you're saying is what I'm trying to say yeah no I I see that and I you know I obviously observed you during that time and I think that's why I think that's why Lucky was the only women's magazine I that I could work at, that I, that I didn't, I truly, I tried to work at other ones and got fired, but <laughs> I think that lucky because I saw that in you and I respected that because I found, I mean, 
I find the whole concept of a personal brand like kind of gross. I just, I feel like it's just not, it's not what I want. No, it's not what I want either. And I had, I had a boyfriend who, who accused me of being somebody who cared only about my brand. And I was just like, I can't imagine how much worse you could give a read on me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then there is this sort of frustration on the other side where it's like, oh, well, maybe it's just that those people were talking about the, you know, this quote unquote successful people. Because the other thing is like, I want boundaries around work. I don't want work to be infiltrating every part of my being and life. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that is, that was just a line of capitalist bullshit that the generation after us were fed and poor millennials. I really feel bad, but for them. Um, the whole girl boss ethos that I don't think that we were spoon fed as much as they were. But there is a thing of like, it's not even jealousy. It's like, huh, they figured out something. They figured out some tricks that I'm not practicing and I could. And then it's like, you know, how much do I want this and how successful do I want to be ultimately? Yeah. Well, those are the questions worth asking. And I, I think that for millennials, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's like all points Mark Zuckerberg, you know, just like that's yeah. that, that they, the only success that they consider like really big is the stratospheric crazy dropped out of Harvard and funded Facebook by started Facebook by the time I was 20, whatever. Yeah, no. And I am much more comfortable with the idea of having enough and just like, this is enough for me. I mean, I guess I'm just, ultimately, I'd rather hang out with slackers. You know, I mean, it's funny because I was just talking about this yesterday. I was talking to a friend about how I did not look for a new job after I left Lucky because I needed a break. But that at a certain point, it might have been a wise thing to do. Um, but she, she said to me, I think the way you live really suits you. And I was like, huh. I think it kind of does. Like, I I have a platform. I have two platforms. I have, right. you know, I have a small audience that seems pretty devoted. Like, I have a schedule that's mine to create and be flexible with. Like, what more do I want? Like, and I have the, and I, and, you know, I should add, I have the financial wherewithal to make those decisions. No, but it is the idea of right-sizing, mm-hmm. right-sizing. And, and this is particularly, you know, it's in any position, but it's particularly creative positions, is right-sizing your idea of success for yourself. And, you know, there are, there are many more levers you could be pulling, but at what cost? Yeah, and I know the cost. I know it right. in- intimately, and I've got no interest in making that part of my life again. No, I know. So it's just a reminder not to compare and despair and just be like, yep, yep. this is this is what works for me. And yes, all of these self-promotion tools are out there and I could I could live online or I could live kind of offline. There was that amazing Michaela Cole speech this week, um, which I'm sure you saw um, at the Emmys mm-hmm. where she was talking about how, you know, we live in a place where visibility, we live in a world where visibility is equated to success. Um, but it's okay to disappear. Yeah. And I, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot too. So yeah. anyway, conversation with Ashley is amazing. Let's get into it without further ado. Yeah. 
Our guest today is Ashley C. Ford. Ashley is a writer, podcaster, educator, and speaker who deals with topics including race, sexuality, and body image. She's also the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Somebody's Daughter, a tremendous book, which is the first Everything is Fine book club pick. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are super excited to have you. And first off, I just want to say congratulations on your book, which really is a beautiful book and it's a stunning accomplishment. And I want to know, when did you first know that you'd tell your family's story? Were you burning to write this? How long were you burning to write this? You know, I okay, so this is what's interesting. Tomorrow I leave for uh, my college town because I'm, I have a series of uh, events um, and talks and class visits over this fall semester as their first ever writer in residence. Um, wow. And I'm really, really excited about it, right? And the, one of the people who helped coordinate it was a former professor, um, Jill Chrisman. And Jill found uh, not too long ago, I want to say maybe a month ago, she found the paper that I'd written in her class, my my initial essay that is sort of like the um, the core of my memoir. <laughs> and she found her notes to me on that essay. And at the bottom of that essay, and I've remembered this my whole life, but you know how you sometimes, even as a memoirist and even with somebody with a wild memory, I still at times am like, am I remembering that correctly? Like, did I get that right? Yep. And I've told this story for years about how Jill Chrisman told me um, that I had written this essay and at the end of it, she felt like, Ashley, this could be a book. You know, and that was the first time it occurred to me that I had a story worth telling, that I could have a story worth telling. And even then, that I might be the right person to tell it. So she found this paper and at the end of it, um, it said, you know, this is a stunning essay, no doubt the beginning to what could be a stunning book. And... For, for me, that's when writing a book became a possibility. I wouldn't say I was convinced right. <laughs> based on that note, but you know, a lot of times you don't really need to be convinced. You need that kernel of hope that something is a possibility. And that's what I got at that time. And that was 10 years ago. She gave you permission. She gave me permission um, from somebody who I respected, from someone who in a lot of ways I've modeled um, my writing practice after, from someone who was honest with me, um, but was also very clearly on my side. You know, I was not a great student. <laughs> I just wasn't. I know now that I have ADHD, but I didn't know that then. I just thought I was lazy and, and ridiculous and, and couldn't do what I wanted to do. Even if my I told my brain I wanted to do it, I couldn't make myself do things. Um, and, you know, she used to tell me, you know, I have to give you a C in this class because you only did half the work. But the thing is, all the work that you turn in is A plus work. This is great work. I wish you would have turned it all in. <laughs> and, you know, I 
I, a book just seemed at that point to me insurmountable in terms of creation. But she, even more than like gave me permission to do it, she sort of gave me the idea that like my idea of what the potential was for myself, for my writing, for my career, for me as a person, um, was very limited. And this person I trusted saw me and essentially let me know, you're not giving yourself your best. Like forget the class, forget a degree, forget all this other stuff. What about you? Are you doing work for you? Like, do you feel good about what you create for you? And that was the beginning of a, a whole other way of seeing myself as a writer. Sure. She, ex she expanded your idea of what you could be. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's undercounted a lot. You know, educators, teachers, leaders, mentors, like all of those people. It's, it's not telling people what to do next. It's sort of just helping people expand their imagination. Everything in our lives, for the most part, for most people's lives, um, especially their young lives, um, teaches them how important it, it is to think about the worst thing that could happen. Um, but they don't really teach you or encourage you to think about the best thing that could happen. Um, God, that's not true. Yeah, you're encouraged to think of all the ways things could go wrong. Um, and then you find yourself not knowing what to do when things go right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's really true. I, I mean, slightly off topic, but I spent the first two weeks of my, the relationship I'm in now, like vomiting and having insomnia. And <laughs> I think it was just like a reaction to like, okay, this person makes you really fucking happy. Can Kim France handle happiness? And I, it, was, it was a struggle. It was a struggle to the death. Oh yeah. I didn't know at all how to enjoy or accept or even in a lot of cases even allow <laughs> my own happiness I knew how to have a good time you know what I mean like I could have fun I've always mm. been able to have fun but enjoy myself for myself <laughs> that was like excuse me like who gets to do that that seemed almost like wanting to become an astronaut at 35. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, but maybe that, Ashley, I mean, reading this remarkable book you wrote, I was really struck, among other things, by the fact that you were, you took care of yourself. So how is it, mm -hmm. how, how it follows that perhaps a person whose main priority was just making sure she was taken care of didn't learn about happiness? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's typical. <laughs> it's difficult. Uh, it's not. I think part of the reason why the book has done well is because there are a lot of things in that book that we are we don't necessarily talk about um, on a on a wide scale. Definitely not culturally or societally. And one of those things is the fact that um, we primarily raise kids to be workers, not to be happy. Um, we raise them to be people who function well 
within the capitalist society. Um, and, and feelings are the antithesis of the capitalist society. Feelings encourage you to stop, notice, and discern. And that's really not how capitalism works. Like that's, that's not how money works. That's not how work works. Work wants you to be sure. They don't want you to discover in general. They want you to be sure right now. And if you make a mistake, they want to be able to punish you for it and not necessarily fire you when you make a mistake. But you know when you make a mistake that that is counting toward the amount of mistakes you are allowed in that position and that in a lot of positions, especially the higher up you go, um, that room for failure gets lower and lower and lower, even though in those positions, you're often taking the biggest risks um, for the company, um, depending. You know, labor jobs are different, right? Like if you're doing a job where it's like that sort of blue collar, hand building, digging, you know, pushing, pulling, all of that stuff, then in those cases, you are often treated worse and as dispensable. But I mean, you're raised to think that's okay. You're raised to think that's honorable to be treated badly by a company and persist. But why would that be honorable? Why would it be honorable to betray yourself and your feelings? Of course. Yeah, the, I mean, the whole setup, the whole climbing the ladder setup, the whole, because what happens is those, this, as you get higher up and you can't make any mistakes and you're holding in all the stress and then because the system is set up to pay your dues, then you're kicking the people behind you when you should actually be bringing mm -hmm. them up. But in order to hold on to your power, you got to keep them down, right? It's like yep. the whole system is, is fucked up. And nobody's really figured out how to solve it because when we try to have, you know, not a top down or a bottom up leadership style, but we try to sort of have everybody's kind of equal. Nobody knows how to deal with that either. And it's probably yep. because we all have such bad boundaries. Yes. <laughs> yes. You don't. It's really hard to be in a space where you have to talk to people and figure out what to do next because we hate talking to people about needing help or the specifics of the help we need. And to be perfectly honest, I think a lot of the times we hate having that conversation because we don't have those answers for ourselves. We know we need help, but when we realize we need help, what comes right after that is shame. Shame for needing help in the first place. So you don't even get to the part where you ask yourself, what kind of help do I need? Who is best equipped to help me with that? Who has availability? If this person can't help, who can I ask next? Or is there a way that I can come in and do that part and make it easier for them to do this part? You never get to the work of actually solving the problem because you're so busy trying to maintain the delusion that you don't ever have problems and that that is your valuable asset that you bring to this company is with me you won't have to think about anything or answer any questions or do any training like that's supposed to be like the dream client yep. is the or the dream employee yep. is the one who comes in and you don't have to tell them or show them how to do anything which then begs the question so what is your job right 
if you're my boss or the hirer. <laughs> right. And you don't want to be a burden, right? We're so afraid yep. to be a burden. Oh my God. I mean, yes. I think this extends into our personal relationships too. Oh I, God, absolutely. yes. Right? I mean, you just like, I, I, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend the other day and I was really having a hard time and I felt like I was taking too much in the conversation. And this person mm-hmm. was just very generously giving to me and the whole time, instead of just receiving, I mean, until I realized what was happening instead of just receiving this person's nurturing and guidance and everything else that they were generously giving i was thinking oh fuck i'm not listening to them i haven't checked in on them i'm taking too much i'm burdening them they're going to end this conversation with me thinking like oh god i'm worn out and i don't want to wear anybody out you know (laughs) right but you know that's even that like and i know that you know this jen that that's not about them that's about you and, and, and your feelings about yourself. And you have to be able, what I've learned anyway, is that I have to be able to trust that people will communicate with me. And if they don't, that can't be my fault. That's right. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's not anybody's fault. Sometimes there are just miscommunications yeah. and it's nobody's fault. And that has to be okay. Like when things go wrong, I was so quick to try to find a way to make it my fault because then I was the one who could fix it. Yep. Yes. And that's just not real. It's it, it's a, it's a delusion that I was trying to live in where I had so, where all of the places where I didn't have control, I was trying to exert control. And all the places where I did have control, I was trying to abdicate control to somebody else so that I didn't have to deal with me as if I didn't enjoy myself or like myself or think I was worth putting that kind of work into. And it was messing me up, y'all. Like I was not having a good time internally for a long time. And I'm just now getting to that point. Yeah, I was about to ask, how did you turn that around? Um, The like quick answer is that I learned how important it was to trust myself and that I could trust myself. Um, The longer answer is a fuck ton of therapy. Um, including going away (laughs) for not like a long time, but I went away for about eight days um, to a program that was specifically um, for uh, survivors of trauma to sort of help you figure out how to begin uh, learning how to regulate yourself emotionally in a healthy way and essentially how to be on your own side which was an inclination I was severely lacking. Um, I didn't really know what it meant to trust myself to be on my own side or to be on my own side. And I definitely didn't know that I could have boundaries with people I loved. And I had to learn those things in order to like be okay with myself. Because the reason why I wasn't liking myself or in some cases even hating myself was because I thought that that's how you changed. That was how Mm. you changed your life. That's how you changed your behavior. If you hate these things about yourself enough, then you will change them because you don't want to be that. But I didn't realize that what I wasn't doing was loving the parts of me that I loved enough 
that I wouldn't then just conflate them with the things that I hate <laughs> or treat them the same way that I treated the things that I hate, which is just hide, 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 isolate, isolate, isolate. Um, yeah, it, it, it sucked. And that therapy got me through being in a loving, supportive marriage really helped me. Um, my husband, you know, my husband thinks I'm like the best things in sliced bread. Like he thinks I'm brilliant. He thinks I'm beautiful. He thinks I'm the best. He sincerely thinks I'm the fucking best. <laughs> and you can't be around somebody like that and not be triggered in one of two ways, which is either like you're going to be kind of upset because you're like, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep saying these things to me? Why do you like me so much? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. Or you're going to be like, hey, this person really likes me. And I'm starting to get curious about whether or not there's more here to like than I thought or than I previously believed. And now let's take a quick break for some ads. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once-daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. 
<laughs> okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I want to ask you about this, about your marriage, because Mm -hmm. you, I I was listening to you in another podcast and I believe it was Roger Ebert who you quoted talking about, what is that fantastic line? You'll get it right and I won't. He says um, about his wife, Chaz Ebert, um, his his, um, widow now, that uh, she is the great fact of my life. I just gave me chills and I wonder I wonder how that having that kind of support and having that kind of love helps you creatively with your work having that kind of love is like having it's like if I decided all of a sudden that you know what I really feel in my spirit is that I want to learn how to walk on a tightrope I want to learn how to get from one side of a tightrope to the other using nothing but my own balance in my body. I am a lot more likely to pursue that interest if I have a safety net underneath me, right? Mm -hmm. My husband, in a lot of ways, emotionally, is my safety net. Because even when he is mad at me, he likes me and he loves me even in those moments. And that's true, vice versa. I have learned that being angry with a person is not the same as not loving them or not liking them. So that has been incredibly, incredibly useful to me. I didn't know how to let somebody take care of me before I was with my husband. I didn't know how to let somebody love me with this much affection and intensity before my husband because I wasn't familiar with it. You know, a lot of people um, get that sort of intense affection love bomb from a parent. And I didn't. My parents, my dad was in prison and my mom is, my mom still sort of hesitates before she kisses me on the cheek. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, that's the family that I grew up in. But I always needed something different. And I got that um, in a lot of ways with my husband. He's a very nurturing spirit. Um, And he's also just down. I don't know how else to say it. Like, (laughs) there is nothing that I could think, oh, I want to give this a shot. Or, oh, I want to try this. Or, oh, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. That my husband would then be like, eh, slow down. You, this is a new wheelhouse. Are you sure you can do that? Are you sure, you know, that that's going to... He would never do that. He would tell me, I think you can do anything. How can I help? Mm. You know? Yeah. And that having somebody believe in you that way is wild. It's like, it's like a drug. It's like a drug. Somebody who you're like, I, I have to finish this piece. I've got to get it done tonight, but I'm, I'm losing steam and I'm getting tired and I, I can't keep going. And he goes, what if I sit at the other end of your desk and I just sit there and I read my book 
And anytime you feel overwhelmed, anytime you feel like you need to stop, he said, I'm going to check in with you and say, do you really need to stop? Do you really need to go to bed? Then let's go to bed. But if you think you can keep going and you just are hungry or thirsty, or you just need to talk for a second, we can do that. And I'll be right here to do that with you. Wow. That kind of support is rare. And it's definitely rare when you're a woman doing all this work and having a certain amount of success. And every time you look at your husband, you don't see envy, you don't see boredom, you don't see somebody who's frustrated or agitated or being insecure about your success. You see somebody who is so proud that they, they start crying before you start crying. If I win an award, if something amazing happens for me, Kelly falls the fuck out. He, I will find him somewhere watching an interview I'm doing from his own computer. Like there's like a live stream of an interview. He'll be watching it and I'll walk in to be like, you know, oh, did you watch it? And he'll just be sitting there in tears. Just like, Aww. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And it's not that that's every time, right? you know, but it's enough that I, I know that this person loves me and it's so much easier to be on your own side when, when it's part of a team. And he's on my side too. And that's true. That's the thing. You know, in so many marriages, I feel like there's still so much imbalance in terms of a woman, you know, oh yeah, you should have a job. You should, you know, in heteronormative, let's say that the heterosexual relationships, heteronormative, there's still, there's still so much imbalance. And I think that it is such a problem. Obviously we're seeing it with childcare, but really it's, it's this thing of not feeling supported, feeling like they're threatened mm-hmm. by your success, feeling like they're going to act out if you do this, if you do that. And it's 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 really remarkable to hear of a man who shows up that much because I think that is extremely rare at least in my generation. I mean, I don't know. I'm going to be honest. I don't know any other women who have the same dynamic with their husband. I know that there are them. (laughs) I know that they exist. I know that they're out there um, because I've spoken to women online about it, but it's still pretty rare to have a husband who, you know, my husband is essentially a house husband. You know, he's also a writer and he writes poetry and he poetry and he writes fiction and he does such a phenomenal job. Like he's such a good writer. And I'm just always waiting for like, okay, but when do you want to put it out there? When do you want to do that? Because I can't wait for people to read your writing because it's so good. Um But for him, it's just like, yes, he has aspirations and ambition and dreams for himself as a writer, but he just feels like right now he's getting what he needs from his practice. And it is his pleasure, according to him, and I believe him, um, to support me in this time and to be the supportive partner who, when I have to travel, when I have meetings and meetings and all this other stuff, it's like, how is my dog going to get taken care of? How is my home going to be taken care of? Those aren't things I have to worry about because he will just pick up the slack. He will find a way to pick up whatever's getting dropped while I'm hyper-focusing 
on my work and he will take care of it. And I try to give that back to him um, by making sure that his writing time is as protected as mine. Yeah, well, that's true equality, right? And that's not overcompensating to create the equality. Because I think that's what so many women in heterosexual, because I know lots of lesbians who their wives are supportive as fuck. Like it's Mm -hmm. great. You know, it's really this like old timey way of living where you're like, oh, you know what? Okay. Well, you're not going to meet me there. I'll just take on more. I'll just take on more. I'll keep making it work. I'll keep making it work. You know? And then all of a sudden you're just like, you realize you're holding the house up and you got to pee and you're like, what the fuck am I going to? do here you know <laughs> yep. um, absolutely um i want to talk about something i think is so cool that you wrote in the book that i that i underlined 400 times there's a section toward the end of the book it's after your grandmother dies who was really important to you and by the way i'm sorry about that because i know she Thank was really you. important to you your home your home in indiana and you have a kind of revelation you guys were living in new york at the time but you decided you want to move home and you want to open up and allow your family to see you as you truly are you want to trust them to love them and you want to exist with them fully as yourself and i think a lot of peer of people who experience trauma in their family they escape and displace themselves or exist in fragmented ways, right? As different people in different places. And you've kind of alluded to this, but I think it's interesting. How did you manage to bring all yourselves together? Intentionally. Okay. (laughs) Very, very intentionally. Um, One of the ways that I think has been really important, uh, I have for years avoided any kind of (laughs) self-talk. Like intentionally speaking to myself kindly sounded so corny and, and so ridiculous that I couldn't bring myself to do it for a really long time. And I am... I've been introduced to the idea of of positive self-talk or or like corrective self-talk for like your inner child and stuff like that for a really long time. I would say I'd started doing it like six months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But what I have learned about like that, that integration process um, is that I often look back at, or I used to often look back at emotions I experienced or, or frustration or anger that I experienced. And I would tell myself, you know, if you had known this, you wouldn't have felt that way. So that means it's fixed. And it's not because the seven-year-old version of me that is still living in my body remembers and she's not convinced. (laughs) She knows what she felt, and she knows that it was real in her body and in her mind. And I have to sort of talk to her about the fact that, yes, this feeling was real in your body and your mind. This is exactly the way you experienced it, and I want to affirm that and validate that for you. But I also want you to know that at the time when you thought that this pain would kill you, it hurts so much that you thought you would die from it. You were wrong. It won't kill you. I know that you feel that it will, but it won't. 
And I know that you worry about dying and you worry about that kind of protection because you generally feel unsafe and you feel like you don't have control and the adults around you are only barely in control and they are not considering you in their decision making. I know that you feel that way. But now I'm the adult and I'm in charge and I will take care of you. You can trust me to take care of you. And you might not trust me right away, but I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove to you that I'm trustworthy and that I will protect and care for you and love you for as long as we are here together. And being able to say that to my child self, um, yes, does weirdly feel ridiculous and corny, but I know that some part of me hears it and believes it because things change. Like I'm a very, I'm not a super woo-woo person in that I'll keep doing some shit that I don't see any productive results from. Right. You know, I results are a thing for me. I'm a Capricorn, okay? Like <laughs> what it's going to be? How's it going to turn out? I need to know. Um, but the tr- the more I work on that part of me, the more I converse with my child self and my angry, angry teen self, um, the more I'm able to convince my adult self of my great potential and capability. This brings up another question I had, because you write with a lot of warmth, but also obviously a lot of blunt honesty about the people in your childhood who were highly flawed and not always there for you in the most positive way. And you show such compassion for these people and for why they were the way they were. And it like that compassion, that expansiveness was one of the things that kind of made me fall in love with you as a person as I read that book. But how did you get past that anger? Um, by accepting it, <laughs> I, I, it, when I said earlier that I thought that you couldn't be angry with people you loved and still be loving them, that's true. Um, I've never really had a problem with being or expressing my anger, uh, with authority figures who I felt were in the wrong. Because I understood my power in that situation. I understood the only power I had was my words and my expression of my emotion. And I was going to use that to its full extent. You weren't just going to treat me a certain way. I wasn't just going to see you treat people a certain way and not say anything. You were going to have to hear my mouth. And that was so powerful to me. I loved it so much that I was able to articulate myself in hard moments. And I hated that the same wasn't true in my home. In my home, articulating my anger, my frustration, my disappointment was impossible. It was just cut off. I would try so hard. I would be thinking of like, how do I say this the exact right way? How do I express this the exact right way? And I would try. And my mom, my mom's reaction, which was negative, (laughs) would um, essentially immediately put me in a place of just shut down. I I stopped being able to speak and express myself. I could cry. Um, but I couldn't say anything else. I, the, the feeling of rejection would be just so deep and so searing that it was like if you like when people 
burn themselves and they open their mouths to scream and nothing come out, comes out. Um, that's how it felt. And the only way for me to get through that or to get past that was to essentially understand my emotional process and understand that emotions are not bad things inherently. Um, that being angry doesn't make me bad. Being disappointment, being disappointed doesn't make me ungrateful. Um, I had to learn what emotions actually were and not just um, rely on the common understanding of emotions that permeated my family and my community. And that that took a really long time. I, I mean, Kelly got a lot of that practice <laughs> of me <laughs> figuring out how to be angry with someone I love, how to be disappointed, how to be frustrated, and how to express that and not walk away feeling like they're never going to speak to me again or they don't love me or I'm bad now. And, and can we talk particularly about forgiveness? Because I feel like that's mm-hmm. a big theme in the book. And, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of the book, I don't think it gives so much away to say that your father was, you find out why your father was incarcerated, that he, yes. that he committed rape. And yet you were totally able to show up for him and have affection for him. So what made it possible for you to get past that and be able to do that? I don't think I really got past it. Um, I accepted it and I was honest about how I felt. I think a lot of people know someone who has done a terrible thing um, or a bad thing or a violent thing um, and found that as disappointed as they were, as hurt as they were, that they still loved that person. Mm-hmm. I think that's normal. And I think that it's not normal to talk about the fact that you love a person who has done a bad thing or who Mm -hmm. has done a terrible thing or a crime or anything. Like it's, we think that loving a human who has, you know, played on on that end of the human possibility spectrum, um, that that says something about us in terms of uh, our connection to their crime. And I don't, think that's true. I think that if somebody has decided, you know, you know what I am? A person who harms people. And that's the way I'm going to live my life from now on. And you're like, you know what? I don't really think anybody should be around that person. You're probably right. Somebody who has decided to harm people, (laughs) like as a conscious intention, yes, get away from that person. Um, Mm -hmm. But lots of people make bad decisions at one point or another in their life. Lots of people do a terrible thing at some point in their life because they're human beings. And I think we lie to ourselves in a lot of cases about our feelings about that person. Or we lie to other people about our feelings about that person because we don't want to be implicated in their badness. Um, What's unfortunate is that when you are related (laughs) to someone who does one of these things, when it's your mother or your brother or your father or uh, a a nephew or a niece or a a sibling, like whoever, when it's somebody like that, um, you kind of are expected by society to be like, yeah, we got to shut that person out now. They are no longer with us. And it's not even that I think that that's right or wrong as much as I just think it's not very useful. 
I don't think it helps. I don't think it's ever helped anybody. Right. Well, it's black and white thinking, right? And it's, it's, it makes us kind of hard when really our lives, we're living our best lives when we are open and soft and permeable to some degree with boundaries, but you know, that when we decide to take these like stands and that's it, that's just the absolute and we don't see it. I do think that it goes back to a fear thing. And what you said is so smart. It's so smart. Like, oh, well, this, this says something about me. If I accept this person, if I can forgive this person, if I can love this person, that's a flaw in me because of what they did. Like, that's just, it's... Mm -hmm. I think what it really is, is an acceptance that, um, that we are all capable of the same amount of good or evil. Yeah. <laughs> all of us. Everybody is. And I think that we want people to think, we want people to trust us because they think to themselves, I know Ashley isn't even capable of that. Like, it's not that I have to trust that Ashley won't do it. It's that I have to convince myself that Ashley isn't even capable of doing it. Right. And that's a, that's a lie. It's an illusion. There is nothing, the worst things that have been done, it's not that I'm incapable of doing them. I just choose not to (laughs) every moment of every day. And so do you. And I wish more people could accept that choice because otherwise it's a really easy way to convince yourself that you are such a good person that everything you do Everything you do must be good because I am good. If I were bad, then maybe I got that wrong. If I were bad, then maybe I said the wrong thing. But I'm good, so I know it's right. And it's like being good and being correct are not not always the same thing. And also being correct, being having like the right thing to say or the right thing to do is a myth in and of itself. It's it, 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 so much of it is just made up. It's all of us clinging to the one thing that we want most in this world that does not exist, which is certainty. Yeah. Yep. And also it goes back to the thing of trusting yourself. It goes back, goes, all goes back to the thing. If you trust yourself, if you enjoy yourself, if you find joy in yourself, if you know who you are, if you're solid in that, then none of this bothers you in the same way. Not in the same way. And the recovery time is so much faster when you do get frustrated or do get disappointed or whatever, because you're able to go to the place in your brain where you start thinking about solutions to an issue instead of the place in your brain where you are just desperately, desperately trying to make this not your fault. Right, right. I mean, and that, and this is something I want to make sure we talk about because I, I find you to be so open and honest not only with yourself, obviously, but with an audience. And you have a big audience at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like huge platform. And 
energetically, not to be too woo, it's a lot to have people coming at you <laughs> all the time, right? I oh, mean, yeah. a negative yeah. comment of this, they think they know you, these parasocial relationships, you know. I, oh, yeah. They, I mean, I, I'm getting better at this, but a bad comment used to like knock me flat on my back, you know, like, oh, especially one if I felt like they got me and they got my weakness a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. Yep. How do you deal? Because I really have seen you, and I'll, I'll say specifically, we were on a panel once, and we we were like, we were on a panel together once, and we were asked some kind of uncomfortable question, and I like deflected with some self-deprecating bullshit, right? And you mm-hmm. came out with this like generous, open, wise answer, vulnerable, and I, I it struck me, it struck me for years that you were able to do that, and I want to know how you think about other people, audience, platform, strangers. I trust myself a lot with strangers. (laughs) Um, And that is one of the places where I've trusted myself most because I am much more unpredictable, or at least I felt like I am much more unpredictable in terms of like whether or not I will stand up for myself or be on my own side with people who I deeply care about. Um, versus people who are just sort of out there. You know what I mean? And it's not that I don't care about those people, but it's not the same. Like if somebody online says to me, you know, like, I think you're this kind of person, what the fuck could that possibly mean to me? They don't know me. Right. Like they don't, they've never sat down to a meal with me before. We've never even gotten a drink. Right. What could you possibly really know about who I am? And to be Honest, the fact that you think you could know this about me based on such little information already makes me discount your opinion. Like I'm already (laughs) moving on, to be honest. Yeah. Um, So I actually have a lot more comfort in that environment than I think most people do because of the way I grew up and because of the way I was raised and because I've always had this thing about if you're going to be in public, if you're going to have people looking at you, um, I feel very good about knowing what I do want to share, what I don't want to share and where my boundaries are. And those have always felt really clear to me. I don't, there is nothing I've shared in writing over the years that I regret in terms of my thought process or sharing about something personal that happened to me. Right. Because those are things that happen. And I understand that other people might carry a lot of shame around those things in terms of sharing them with other, with, with the, uh, with the public or with others. Um, but I've worked through a lot of what would make me feel ashamed of just sharing those facts, right? Just sharing those experiences. There are things, uh, my book is 225 pages long. I am 34. I've had a lot of things go on in this life that are not in that book. You know, mm-hmm. it's just that the things that are in those book, the things that are in the in that book are the things that most people would most try to hide about themselves and about their experience. But I'm not ashamed of any of that stuff. Right. I don't think any of those things make me bad. I don't think any of those things make me wrong. I don't think any of those things make me harmful. And the only thing I think is done by sharing those stories is that for me, um, a lot of that shame dies when it comes out into the light. Because, you know, I think it was Brene Brown who said shame is like mold. 
Um, <laughs> and it needs to be in like a dark, damp, hidden place to grow. But you shine that light on it and it, it kills it. And I feel like that has been true for so much of the thing, so many of the things um, that initially I thought I would feel ashamed of or I would feel ashamed about. I, I've walked through that shame and found that in almost every case, it didn't belong to me. So I let it go. I think one, and I keep using the word remarkable. I'm going to take it out of my vocabulary for the rest of the day. <laughs> but I do think it's remarkable that, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in this book that you shine a light on is the fact that you were sexually assaulted at 13. And I find mm-hmm. the scene in the book really chilling, which is something you accomplished by not actually describing the act itself, which I, I thought was, was really amazing. Um, but... How did you think about writing about trauma? Was that, that obviously was an intentional choice not to take the reader through the nitty gritty of what happened. I knew I didn't want to re-traumatize myself and I didn't want to traumatize anybody else. I knew that for sure. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was, I knew that when I thought about that moment in therapy or otherwise, that what I thought about wasn't the nitty gritty of it. What I thought about was what was happening inside of me in that moment. I I remembered this, this what felt like a tearing, a splitting of myself um, that felt involuntary and it felt internal. It felt like I went away and I wanted to be able to capture my experience of this moment without putting the reader through the physical experience of that moment. So, you know, aside from um, talking about how cold I was, I don't talk a lot about how my body feels in that moment or what's happening to my body. And that's because, to be perfectly honest, Rape is a violation against the body, um, but it's not about your body. It's not about the way you look. It's not about the way you move. It's not about your color. It's not about your weight. Rape is about what that person is trying to do to your mind and what they're trying to do to you emotionally. A A transference, in a lot of cases, of pain and frustration and anger and disappointment that you did not consent to. And I wanted to talk about that violation because especially for women, um, we focus so much on the violation of the body as if like um, the, and I like, I mean, I can't really think of another way to say it, but as if like the vagina in and of itself is so sacred that it is just like, violated by this moment. But it's not about the vagina. It's about what that person is doing to you from a power perspective um, and the harm that they are causing to you as a person, not just a body. So I didn't want it to be something that focused just on the body so that people could, you know, essentially just be like, yep, read that before, know about that. I know how that happens. Been through that. Yeah, but you don't know what it's like to be in my mind during that. Right. And that's mm-hmm. what I want you to see. That's what I want you to know. So smart. It's so smart. 
really. I mean, yep. it was such a smart choice as a writer. It's, I mean, this, this book is really, I mean, on top of everything else, you really told this story really well. And I hope, I know that you know that, and I know that it resonates, but sometimes when you're writing, when you have a story to tell, right, you can be mm-hmm. like, well, it was just, it was just the story that I had to tell. And you forget. Yeah, it's just interesting. It's just interesting, right? It's not my, yeah. it's not the fucking fact that like I put so much effort into my craft, right? And this is a really beautifully crafted book. And I, I really, I just felt that your sentences are really just gorgeous. And I, I just hope you know that. So thank you. I wanted to say it to you. Can I that ask about Oprah now? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I have to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I really have to ask, <laughs> ask about your interactions with Oprah. Um, because your book, your son, somebody's daughter was chosen as an Oprah book through her imprint of Flatiron Books. And I would imagine mm-hmm. that was a big thrill. Oh, I mean, can I tell you the story? Yes, I please. I would love to tell you the story. Yes. So I had had like, after I'd finished my proposal and my agent was like, okay, I've got some editors I want to send it to. Let's start sending it out. And I was like, great, great. Let's send it wide. Let's send it to, you know, let's, let's see if anybody bites. Like I'm so excited about the opportunity, right? Next thing I know in about a week and a half, I have 14 meetings with editors at publishers. Yes. 14 (laughs) meetings yes jen and i have both sold books and i never had 14 meetings <laughs> i don't know about you jen for she may have uh, i like, did i did honest. for the this first is, one is, but it doesn't matter this is jen romolini we're talking about okay <laughs> <laughs> go ahead keep going so i'm like no i think jen might have had it i um yeah so i yes 14 meetings and one of those meetings was with Flatiron. And one of the things that immediately impressed me about Flatiron was that everybody was at the meeting. There were like 10 people. The, the publisher was there. The, the executive editor was there. The person who uh, wanted to be my editor, like my direct editor, was there. Marketing was there. Publicity was there everybody was there and I was like wow they brought everybody and I was really impressed by that yeah and we had an amazing conversation um, about the book and we left and then the book went to auction there were going to be multiple offers um, and the offer started rolling in it was at auction for um, two days my agent did not want to, she was like, we're not going to keep going. It's two days. It's great. Um, and at one point my agent called me and she said, okay, so let's talk about these offers. Um, and we're going to start from the bottom and work our way up. Great. The biggest two offers, um, and in, in terms of monetary value, I really liked both editors. I really liked both publishers. Um, it was feeling really tough for me. And then Flatiron goes, as part of their offer, um, we've sent the proposal to Oprah and she really likes it. Mm. She would love to publish it on an Oprah book. So we would like to add that to our offer. And my agent 
was like, are you sitting down? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And she said, so here's the offer um, money wise. And if you don't mind, I've never really told anybody money wise what my book was, but I feel comfortable doing that now. So right. please do. Um, so she said, Flatiron's offer is $800,000. Yes. For <laughs> North American rights, you will retain your film and graphic rights. Yes. And it will be on an Oprah book imprint. And then like, here is the breakdown of payments. Here's, you know, other things. And as soon as she said, Oprah... I pretty much stopped listening to everything else <laughs> because I was like, are you telling me that? I was like, so what does that mean? And they were very clear about the fact that being on an Oprah imprint does not mean that Oprah is going to be super involved with the promotion of your book. It just means that it's part of an Oprah book imprint it's gonna get you know all of the marketing and stuff that they would do for what they would consider a featured book for the year and you know all of that other stuff they're gonna put a lot of work into it but that doesn't mean that like you're gonna get to meet oprah or that anything's gonna happen really with oprah except for her name being on your book and i was like good enough i'll take it i'll take it and so between the offer which was Literally $150,000 more than the next highest offer. Um, And it was also including an Oprah book. And I really like these people. It it felt like a no-brainer. I knew I liked Bren, my editor. um, So I was like, let's pull the trigger. Let's do it. We did it. And I spent a good chunk of writing this book thinking, I really hope I don't embarrass Oprah. (laughs) because her name name is going to be on it. So I hope I don't (laughs) embarrass her. And I was really happy when I found out that she had read um, the final version and that she loved it and that she definitely wanted to be involved. Um, At a publicity and marketing meeting about a month, maybe six weeks before the book came out, my team um, said, hey, we're going to reach out to Oprah's team and we're going to figure out if like maybe she's open and we'll do something. And I was like, great. And then at the next meeting, they go, so this has never happened before. (laughs) But when we asked Oprah's team, you know, like what would she be open to doing? What would she be willing to do? They came back to my team and said, Oprah said, what does Ashley want? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Did you explode so at that like, moment? A little bit. Parts of me did. I mean, <laughs> I don't have arms anymore. They're gone. I don't know if you guys knew about this. They blew off. Um, no, I, I was just like, what? And so I thought about it. I'm like, well, what's the big thing? What do I want? And I just, the thing that kept coming back to me is like, I just want to talk with her. I just want to talk with her. I want to do like, I want to be in conversation with her. Like that's a big ask to be like, hey, Oprah, can you come interview me about my book? But it's what I wanted. I thought about some smaller things I could ask for, like maybe a social media post or something like that. But I was like, 
no, I want to get what I want. I want, <laughs> I yeah. want to talk to her. So they were like, okay, we'll get this back to her. It might take a little while um, before she gets back. The next day, she said yes. Wow. Okay. Absolutely. So, um, okay. So, so many things. So first off, I'm dead imagining you. The pressure of writing a book and then the pressure of writing a book that Oprah will like. It's just like, <laughs> I'm dead. I'm dead just thinking about it. <laughs> I it's can't, so much. I can't live. <laughs> It's so much. Oh, my God. Okay, so that's number one. But two, fuck you, asking for what you want. Yes, that's so amazing. That's exactly what you should have done. So good. And three, talking about money. We don't talk about money enough. We don't talk about how much we make enough. We don't talk. We're like, oh, 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 it's money. You know, I'm so glad that you're just like, yes, this is how much money I made for this book. Because, God damn, you deserved it. Yep. Also, I wanted to say it because, you know, one of the things that has been really hard for me is knowing um, my book has done really well. A lot of let a lot of that is me and my work and my team and the amazing work that my publisher put into promoting the book and all those things. But another part of it is that what I was paid to write this book allowed me to take really excellent care of myself while I was writing this book. And another thing that was really important to me when it came to this book and why this book has been such a success is a lot of timing and luck. My book came out right when everybody was finally like, got my second shot, let's go. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Let's be, everybody was so optimistic. We're, we're going to beat this thing. <laughs> the yeah. pandemic is going to be over, you know. And now people who have books that were supposed to be coming out this fall are, are having issues with supply chains. Yeah. And, 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 and printers being backed up. And before that, nobody, everybody, books were coming out and they were like, what do we do about tour? Right. What do we do about all of these other things? And by the time my book came out, everybody knew how to use Zoom. Yeah. Everybody knew how to use mm-hmm. Crowdcast. Everybody knew how to use these things. Yep. So there's also been a lot of really excellent luck and timing on my part. And I don't want to discount that just because I feel like sometimes people look at what has gone on for me and they stop and they think, what's wrong with me? Or why didn't that happen for me? Or why can't I make that happen for me? And the truth of the matter is, like, you are a big part of it. Don't get me wrong. But you're not all of it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you're saying that because I've seen writers who have had that same kind of luck and fortune. And the the book hit at just the right time. And it's all these circumstances. And then attributed it all to themselves. And it's like... Yes. And I've seen it happen. And I'm like, come on, man. It's like, you know, a lot of people are writing a lot of good books. You know, they are. You know, like, it's true. And it's okay. It's okay that you had the luck good for you. I don't begrudge you that luck. I support you. I'm happy for you. But it's not all you. That's absolutely true. It's not all me. And I don't... I don't think it takes anything away from me. I know how hard I worked. I know what I put into this book. I know what this book cost me. Right. And I can be honest about that while also acknowledging everything that went right that doesn't always go right for every 
anybody else. Yes. You know, when people ask, you know, how do you do this cool thing, that cool thing? I do. I can do it now because I'm financially stable and I have a career that invites me to do more work for large amounts of money, which is fantastic. But that money isn't just the accomplishment. I don't think people understand that like making a lot of money isn't just about having that money. It's about what it does for your life. Yes. Yeah. And not everybody is going to get the chance to sell a book, their first book, for $800,000. Not everybody is going to get the chance to devote themselves to the work of creating something that is then received extremely well because they have other commitments. They have other priorities. They don't have the same opportunity for ease that I had in that process. And so I'm like, don't hold me up in a lot of cases as like, oh, this is what ha- this is what can happen when you work hard. You can come from nothing and end up here. I'm like, uh-uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this shit was hard. And a lot of the people who were at the same places where I was at different times over the course of my career, the difference between me being in this place and them being in the place where they are has a lot more to do with who I knew and what I got Yep. than yep. how hard we work. Yeah. It's so great to hear someone actually say that, like someone who's had tremendous luck to say, yeah, a lot of it is just fucking luck and being in the right place and having the right moment. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, Brave is the wrong word, but it's a fantastic. It's, it's refreshing honest. and it's honest. It's honest. <laughs> that is the fucking thing. It is honest and yeah, it's honest. And people damn themselves and say, "Oh, I'm not as good as this person." I mean, also the comparison game. I'm not as good as this person because of this. Yep. And a lot of it is is you know you were in the right place at the right time. You were and you were open enough. You were open enough to receive the gift of whatever was going on in the moment. That's, that's another yes. thing that I've, I've found for myself, you know, like, cause I've similarly had that thing. And I, you know, I've been out on a circuit, like a, here's how you become a successful person circuit, you know? And I've been mm-hmm. on, I've been on panels with women and I'm like, your husband's fucking rich. Your person's that, you know, it's like, yes. it's like <laughs> let's stop this bullshit. Like, yes, I was in the right place at the right time. And I was open to the opportunity that came and yes. I, I have not always been open and you know sometimes I feel closed and the thing's right there and I can't grab it it's just I can't do it I'm not there and like hard agree that's it and it doesn't and the luck doesn't diminish the accomplishment not at all no 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 but so many people act like it does and that's just and that's because you know why because luck doesn't fit into our our American myth that's right. It just That's doesn't right. fit into it. Yep. And so because it doesn't fit, people just want to be like, well, then it's not real. <laughs> and it's like, listen, if you can't fit a California king size bed in your bedroom, that doesn't make them not real. That doesn't mean <laughs> they don't exist. <laughs> no, it's so- that just means you don't have enough room for one. That's all it means. And we grow up thinking that like, I I also think it's messed up that we grow up thinking that people who have a lot of money are the people who are working the hardest. No, that's that's the narrative that we grow up with. And it's insane. It's insane. 
saying I am more financially stable than I have ever been in my entire life. I do very well for myself. I have not worked this little since before I could work. Yeah, no. And that is often the case. That is often the case. This is the myth of the the sort of Horatio Alger, like, you know, bootstraps, American dream, you know, just, just muscle your way through the hardest. A lot of times the greatest success comes with ease. Yes. And we don't realize that. And it's ease and it's calm and it is, you know, not self-care with a, with a face mask, but self-care of really gentleness with yourself, learning everything you learned to trust yourself. Because quite honestly, I've been in the face of success and not been in a good space emotionally and ran Mm -hmm. away from it because I couldn't handle it. Because it was too, it was too terrifying to me because people's attention, people looking at me was too painful for me. And like Mm -hmm. we, you know, and I self-sabotaged, but whatever, that's just where I was at. Like, that's no ding on me. Like, that's where I was at. I had unprocessed trauma and I was just like, I had like put the success coat of paint over my, over my trauma. My trauma was like, ah, I'm coming through. Still here. I'm coming through. No For fucking, sure. No fucking blowout's going to fix this. <laughs> oh my God. That's so real. That's, oh my God, that's so real. You know, I never, I was never quite at a place, even, even in poverty, I never thought that like, oh, being rich will fix everything. No, me neither. But that's because, and, and, and I'm glad that I believe that because now I know like when I have a problem that money can fix and when I have a problem that money can't fix. Yep. Yeah. Um, and some people can't discern between the two and I'm really glad that I can. Um, but at the same damn time that that's true, I also know how much ease money has brought into my life and how much some of the biggest help I've received in my life, the actual life-changing help has been financial. Mm-hmm. Roxanne Gay is my mentor, okay? You can't get, first of all, you can't get a lot luckier than that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Than to have, you know, met Roxanne Gay before Bad Feminist and formed a mentorship relationship with her and then have Bad Feminist come out and to be and have her just throwing like all the things that she doesn't have time to do and can't do. She's putting your name on that list. She's pointing people toward you. Yeah. But and that has been amazing for my career. That has been amazing for me as a person to have somebody like Roxanne have that vote of confidence in me. Um, And I can I know that I can talk about this because she's given me permission to talk about it. But, you know, even before those things were happening, Roxanne was doing things like buying me a cell phone when mine was broken. Yeah. Roxanne Mm -hmm. was doing things like buying the plane tickets that got me home for my grandmother's funeral. Roxanne was doing things like hearing from somebody else that I had had some sort of a financial issue and sending me money, sight unsaid, just, you need this. So I'm not, this is not like a, oh, you should take this or can I help you? It's you need this. It's yours now. Take it. When I was trying to be a freelancer the first time, as like I had decided to go freelance and within a week accidentally dumped a, a whole cup of water on my laptop. 
And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't. I was so in a place ready to hate myself, ready to, you know, like fall into a place of like, you know, in 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 terminal failure, just like always fail. You know what I mean? I was yep. at that place. Spiral. And then I get an email that I have a laptop waiting for me at the Apple store um, that Roxanne bought. She bought me a MacBook Pro. And just sent me the email that said it was ready for pickup at wow. the Apple store. And that's the computer I wrote my book on. Yeah. That's wow. the computer I still have. I'm so emotionally attached to this laptop that even though I need and should buy a new one, I can't bring myself to do it because of how much this means to me. And Roxanne hates that. She's always like, please buy a new laptop. You need a new laptop. Please go get yourself a new laptop. And I'm like, absolutely not. You got me this laptop and I'm never giving it away. You know, like we don't talk enough about the fact that like a lot of people's needs are very practical. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Some people need advice, but most of us, we just need money and a chance. Yeah. Uh, Well, on that note, as much as I hate to end this conversation... I feel like we need to tell our readers where to find you. I mean, you're everywhere. Everybody. Thank you. <laughs> I'm super easy to find. I am on Twitter at iSmashFizzle. I'm on Instagram as SmashFizzle. And you can always find what I'm up to and what I have going on on my website, AshleyC4.com. Thank you. I love you. Thank you so much. This was so good. I love you. I just love you. Sorry. Thank you for being on here and talking to me. You always make me feel good. I want to say that Jen and I, um, and Kim, you're fantastic too. Okay, so don't feel left out. But Jen and I are kindred spirits. There are few people... Um, and Jen knows this, there are not a lot of people, um, who I feel an instant connection with or who I could hang out with at any time. And she's one of those people who, if I found out Jen Romolini was in Indianapolis right now, (laughs) everything else on my schedule today would be out the window because spending time with her for me is like spending time with a person who can see inside my spirit so I don't have to explain myself too much. And that is so rare, but it is so awesome. And if I regret anything from the past couple years, it would probably be not spending more time in LA with her. Are you crying, Jen? Yes, of course I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel the same way about you. And thank you so much for saying that to me. And thank you so much for seeing me because yeah. I it is it is a real gift in this world to feel as seen as I feel with you, Ashley Ford. It's a mutual feeling. So, you know, I know. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> all right. Ending the interview now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> listening to everything is fine we are your hosts i'm jen romolini and i'm kim france if you like the show please do us a favor and rate and review it on the platforms on all the platforms or on the one you're listening to it really helps us build audience if you'd like to get bonus episodes you can subscribe to our patreon it is patreon.com backslash everything is fine 
You can find us on Instagram at EIF Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, and you can find Kim at her blog, Girls of a Certain Age. Oh, and if you want to email us, we do have an email address. It is everythingisfinethepodcast at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.